Welcome to Trailhead. Uh, my name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor. I want to welcome you uh, here this morning. Last night we had our first Saturday night service. Um, had about 100 people out last night, and I uh, want to invite you, if you want to join us uh, next week, same bat time, same bat channel. If you would like to make the plunge into the evening, this thing's going to happen. So uh, Saturday nights are available. It helps us create space on Sunday morning, um, and uh, that's a great way because that's usually when, when first-time visitors are coming around, their first thought is to show up on a Sunday morning, and it's our way of continuing to uh, equip us for growth. And so a uh, huge thanks to all the leaders who helped make that possible. Um, uh, of course, our staff, uh, Brian, um, good job, man. Dude doesn't even have a voice and uh, led last night, led this morning. Joe, uh, the family guy, when you see Joe, uh, Trailhead Kids, make sure you, you give him a big thank you. I didn't even see him last night. He was swallowed by a classroom down there. Um, Lori, uh, back there, who hates being in the spotlight, but of course, um, the leader of the leaders and the one making all the logistics together. So huge thank you to everyone who helped us uh, pull that off last night. I'm excited about where that's going to go, and um, uh, I'm excited about where we're going this morning. If you are a guest with us this morning, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Trailhead, um, we, are, we are passionate about helping people grow in grace. I mean, that's the bottom line. We are passionate about helping people walk uh, in the joy of their salvation, in the freedom of grace, in, in the power of humility. Uh, we believe that, that um, if you're a follower of Christ, man, we want you walking in your first love, right? That, 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 that vibrancy that comes with initial faith, that, that doesn't have to pass, right? We don't have to become believers and then become crusty. That doesn't have to happen, right? We, we can stay vibrant and engaged and excited because it stays an engaging and exciting message. I mean, God's work doesn't stop. Um, if you're not a believer, man, I'm really honored that you joined us this morning and, and that you're checking this out. This is a safe place to peek over the fence into Christianity and just see what this is about. And I hope that we give you a glimpse into why this is so compelling to us, why this is not just um, a club that we join, a way that we occupy our time, but is in fact um, something that changes our lives, um, literally transforms us from the inside out. And so I want to welcome you this morning. Now we are starting a new sermon series today. We are looking at the Old Testament book of Jonah. So let's grab our Bibles and go over to the book of Jonah. If you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we are going over to page 774, 774. Um, if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that one with you. We would love for that to be our gift to you so that you can keep digging in and studying the Word of God. Um, and thanks for joining us for this new series. When you came in, you saw a table with um, our new study books. Um, really, really excited about this. We started doing this um, last, man, I don't remember, it's been a little while, but, but this is our best effort to help you get the most out of these studies. Um, and so there are three parts to these study books that we've designed. The first is to equip you to get into the text before the sermon. So like the week before you show up to listen to the sermon, you're actually doing a little bit of what we call inductive Bible study. You're, you're getting in, and this book equips you to help you just open it up and, and ask some simple questions, but it helps you engage the Word on your own before you show up. Then there's a place for taking notes, and then there's a place for discussion questions at the end, because we believe that, that often we get the most out of Scripture when we're learning about it in community, right? God never designed your spiritual walk to be something to be done in isolation, 
right? That, that's a very modern and American idea, but, but it's not the healthiest, right? For most of human history, people have seen um, spirituality as a communal thing, something that I learn more when I'm hearing what God's doing in your life, and, and, and I am enriched more when I share with you what God is showing me, right? So as we, as we come into community, um, that helps us grow. So we do, if you missed this table on the way in, just raise your hand. We would love to put one of these into your hands. Um, and uh, so just put your hand up high. Don't be shy. Put it up. We've got people that, that are just going to give you one. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, we would love for you to engage it and continue studying with us. Um, one of the key ways that we grow is in community. And I just want to reiterate again that community groups are our uh, primary way of helping people move into small group, right? Sundays are important. Learning from the sermon is important, but life transformation takes place best in small groups. That's where you know and are known, are loved, and, and learn to love. It is the place where you get to move into actual relationship with actual people and grow together. And, and our community groups are getting ready to relaunch. We have uh, groups that meet throughout the week in different homes, um, and uh, we would love to help you connect with a group that is close to you. Um, and again, you can join a group. You don't have to be a member. You don't even have to be a follower of Christ. If you just want to keep learning, if you just want to keep growing, we're excited to have you join our community and move into this study with us. And so visit Connection Point, which is the, the uh, table at the back of our lobby. And uh, if you want more information or if you would like uh, to, to uh, actually join a group, we will um, help you in whatever way we can. All right, the book of Jonah, I'm really excited about diving into this study. Um, I've been meditating on the book of Jonah, um, really since, I guess, about March. Um, and I think it's been meditating on me. It's one of those things where I'm not sure if, if I'm studying the book or the book's studying me. It's, it's uh, in many ways, the, um, the lab before the lesson. The Lord often takes me uh, into personal experiences that, that are connected with what I'm studying, and then um, that helps, uh, I think, uh, as we open the Word. Uh, it's been a heavy season for me. It is rich. And it is challenging, and I'm incredibly excited about what God's going to do in us as we open this book to study it. I was reminded about it this summer. One of the things that I, I try to do over the course of the summer is read some fiction. Fiction is really life-giving to me. Um, I reread Lord of the Rings, and, and um, I'm in the process of rereading uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, when I was reading um, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the well, most well-known of the Chronicles of Narnia, there was a scene in there, man, that just spoke to me very powerfully about Jonah, it's when the two brothers and the two sisters first enter Narnia. Now, if you're not familiar with this, there's, there's four siblings that are kind of abandoned in this house during wartime in England, and they find a wardrobe in an empty room. And, and of course, it's magical because wardrobes are. And um, they walk through the back of it, and they land in this magical land called Narnia, and they meet these, these talking animals um, and some of the most significant first encounters are with the beavers, and the beavers are, are talking to them and, and basically saying, hey, we've been expecting you, actually. Um, this is a surprise to you. It's not to us. We've been looking for you. And they're like, what? And they're like, yeah, you get to meet Aslan. That's so exciting. You get to meet Aslan. And they're like, who is Aslan? And they're like, who is Aslan? He's, he's the great lion. And Susan's like, oh, he's a lion? I thought he was a man. He's a lion? Is he safe? And Mr. Beaver is like, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. 
And as you study this, what you find is that Aslan is actually the one who sang Narnia into existence. And, and um, that idea that, that he is not safe, but he is good. Man, that gripped me because that's the story of Jonah. In the story of Jonah, what you're going to find is that the grace of God is not safe, but it is good. It is going to challenge us. It is going to make us uncomfortable. It is going to, I think, make us squirm, um, but it is um, going to enrich us. Here's the thing. We crave the benefits of grace, but we, do, we fear the demands of grace, if we're honest. We, we want the benefits of grace, but we often squirm a little bit when we start thinking about the demands of grace, right? We want everything God's going to give, but we get nervous about what God's going to take. What is God going, what is God going to, to want from me um, as he gives to me? And, um, and I think there's legitimacy in the squirming, right? So today we're going to look specifically, what do we do when God's grace looks ugly? Right? What do we do when God's grace looks ugly? Because God's grace looked ugly to Jonah. So let's take a look at Jonah. We're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to read out loud, follow along uh, in your Bibles. Jonah 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, uh, when you hear the name Jonah, you, you probably automatically add the phrase and the whale, right? It's like you do it in the back of your head, it's involuntary. It's Jonah and the whale. Or, or if you were raised later, it might be Jonah and the great fish, right? And we're going to talk about the fish, the whale, the megalodon, that's what I think it was. But we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but right, there's certain stories that, that for whatever reason have become the staple material of kids' ministry, right? You got Jonah and the whale, right? You got Noah and the ark. You got the 12 spies of, of Jericho and, and Rahab the hooker, right? Maybe not that one so much, but um, how do these become kids' stories, right? These are, not, these are terrifying stories, right? And we decorate our kids' uh, nurseries with them. Um, most of you probably learned about this story first. If you were raised in a Christian home in kids' ministry, if you were lucky, it was from an older woman who had served in kids' ministry for the last 200 years, and she was probably called Aunt Mabel, and she taught you about Jonah using flannel graphs. And, and if that is true, you are one of the richest people on earth. I mean, talk about that is a blessing. Old school is best school, right? And so she would get up there and she would tell you this story about Jonah. And she would actually move the flannel pieces around the board. And you'd actually see Jonah get swallowed by this whale, right? And, 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 and that was enriching. And, and, you know, if you were born a little bit later, you, you probably heard about Jonah through, you know, VeggieTales. VeggieTales is a very, very weak substitute for flannel graphs. Um, but a little bit more well-known modernly, right? So if you learned about it from this, you think Jonah is a piece of asparagus, um, apparently poorly seasoned because the fish wouldn't swallow it all the way. And um, you learned that Jonah had a friend by the name of Khalil. Um, Khalil was a caterpillar, 
Well, not exactly, he says. His mother was a caterpillar. His father was a worm, but he's okay with that now. I don't know how that passed the, the censors. That is not appropriate for kids' entertainment. Um, but, but Khalil is not biblical, okay? There's a lot of things when we, when we turn these into kids' stories. There's a lot of ways we change these stories. And when we change the stories, we often lose the power. These are not kids' stories. They are our stories. They are biblical stories, and they contain profound truth for us. Um, Most people, when they think of the book of Jonah, um, think of it as fiction. And there's good reason for that. Let's admit that up front. There's good reason for that. The events that are described in the book of Jonah are absolutely unbelievable, right? Whether you want to talk about a man being swallowed by a giant fish and living in its belly for three days, or you want to talk about a man showing up at Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and telling them, you're evil, God is going to judge you, and they actually repented, right? Both are absolutely unbelievable, and I get why some people um, would argue that this is, in fact, fiction. It is a crazy story, right? Um, some biblical scholars, in fact, would claim that this falls into the genre of didactic fiction. What that means is that it's a, a made-up story designed to teach, right? That the original author never meant for us to actually take this as actual history. We were supposed to take it as a made-up story that had a moral or, or an inter- interesting lesson or, or some sort of, uh, it was a parable of some sort that was meant to, to enlighten us um, in, in, in certain ways. All right, so as logical as that might seem, because the events are unbelievable, um, there are some problems with this view. Um, The first, the Jews treated it as prophetic literature. It is one of the minor prophets, right? So when you find the book of Jonah, you're going to find it surrounded by Amos and Obadiah and other Old Testament, what they called minor prophets, not because they were less important, it's because what they wrote was shorter, okay? Um, So it was counted in prophetic literature, and prophetic literature was true right? The ancient Jews and the modern Jews that are still hold to this would, would see this as, as revealed from God, absolutely true. And so the person who wrote it and the people who received it um, thought of it not as didactic fiction, but, but, as, but as truth. And it's clearly not a parable, even, even, though, even though there are elements of it that seem like it's like, man, that just seems like it's meant to be symbolic. It's clearly not a parable because, first of all, Jonah was an actual person. Um, he's mentioned in, in Old Testament history, um, and uh, God is a character in the story, and no Jewish writer would have ever made God a fictitious figure in any story. They had way too much respect for Yahweh, the God of the universe, to ever speak of Him in any way that was not absolutely true. So it's very clear that whoever wrote this didn't intend for it to be taken as fiction, but as historical. So while some would argue that it's didactic fiction, um, and, and, and I get it because, because it's, it's crazy. I agree with most biblical scholars that it's true, that, that this stuff actually happened, as crazy as it is. Um, in fact, it's so crazy, it, you'd think it would almost take the miracle, you know, similar to raising someone from the dead, right? I mean, and, and in fact, Jesus himself refers to Jonah as an actual historical figure, and specifically to him being swallowed by a fish. And he's like, you think that's crazy? Wait till, I, wait till you see what I do, right? That was just a sign. Here comes the reality. He was swallowed by a fish for three days. I'm going to be dead, and I'm going to come back to life, right? So the same God who worked the miracle of resurrection could, in fact, protect Jonah in the belly of a megalodon and, uh, and keep him alive. Now, he probably looked pretty nasty when he came out, but we'll talk about that. 
Um, so a few other things that are fascinating about this book, things that you may not know, but I think actually help enrich our understanding of it. The first is that this book is actually a masterpiece. There are some scholars who would argue that, that the book of Jonah was put together at different times, and by scholars, I don't actually mean scholars. I mean more like YouTube scholars. Um, people people that, that are like, this is such a crazy story. I'm sure there was a story of Jonah, and then later somebody added to it the story of the fish, because that's just so ridiculous. And somebody else added this and added that. This book is clearly a single work. When you look at, at the, the linguistic structure, the storytelling of the book, it is not piecemeal. It was not put together at different times and in different places by different authors. It is very clearly a work that was put together by a single, highly literate author because there are subtleties in both language and structure that show that it's clearly designed and balanced from beginning to end. It is one of the most literarily sophisticated books in the Old Testament. Whoever wrote it knew about writing. Whoever wrote it knew exactly what they were doing when they, when they put it together. It is, in fact, a work of art. Um, and the second thing is, is it's really unusual in its structure. It begins like, like the first word in the English translation is now. And we don't really notice that. That doesn't seem like a whole lot to us. The Hebrew word there um, can be translated and then. <laughs> As if the author was beginning in the middle of a story. Right? It's like and then. Now, we don't know what happened before. But and then, it's like this thing just kind of picks up where, and when you get to the end of the book, what you're going to find is that it ends literally right in the middle of a conversation between Jonah and God. Like, you don't even get the end of the conversation, right? You're just, there's this conversation, and then boom, the end of the book. It's, it's op- it, it begins open-ended, it ends open-ended. From a literary perspective, this is fascinating to me. This, this reflects a very modern form of storytelling called post, postmodern um, uh, literature, which, which postmodern literature is all about how every story is really just one scene in a much larger story. They, they begin kind of in the middle of something, and they end with a bunch of loose ends, and, and in the middle they tell a compelling story right? A lot of movies are like that, and, and some of you find that storytelling incredibly frustrating because it usually doesn't leave you very settled. It doesn't leave you, like, with clean answers and clean endings. I find that fascinating because what that means is that, that whoever wrote this intended for us to see this a, as not a complete story that we could analyze, then walk away from, and learn from. This is an open-ended story that is meant to, in some ways, include us. This is a story that, that, that is ongoing. There are things about this story that invite us in. Even though it is crazy, there are things about us that this is like a, a, a story, but it's just a snapshot in a larger story, and the author is inviting us to recognize we're part of that story. Right? That God is telling a story that's much bigger than our stories. And our story, even though we always think of our story as the most important because we're the ones living it, right? In the same way when you're in a traffic jam, you're the most important person in the traffic jam. Why doesn't everybody just get out of your way? Because, because we just tend to see life through our own eyes. We recognize that the reality is everybody in this room has their own story. And those stories overlap with all the other stories. And in the end, God is telling one great story out of all of these little stories. And each of those little stories comes together in a powerful way to, to move through God's story of redemption and restoration. And so, so Jonah invites us to recognize that we are part of that greater story. One of the central themes in this story is how humans struggle with grace. Humans struggle with grace. And a lot of times we don't think about it like that because grace just seems like a wonderful thing. Who doesn't want grace, right? But the reality is we struggle to be loved. 
Now, we struggle against love. We want God to love us, but we also struggle against the God who loves us. This strange story reveals our hearts and invites us to grow in grace, even the difficult parts. So let's take a look at the text and, um, and unpack these first three verses and see how it sets the stage for us. In verse 1, it begins, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Um, this is not the normal opening for a minor prophet. If you flip back to Obadiah, um, it begins with um, the vision of Obadiah. If you go back to Amos, it says the word of Amos. That's typically how it begins, is, is the prophet saying, hey, here's the prophecy I received. Here's the word I received from God, and I'm going to give it to you. And, and often it's very clear that they're the ones who wrote the book. The book of Jonah, on the other hand, we never actually find out who wrote the book of Jonah. The author doesn't identify themselves. It could have been Jonah. It could have been somebody who, who got the source material from Jonah and was able to, to gather information. We don't know. But with this opening, what we find is that the focus is not on the message Jonah received as much as it is that Jonah received a message. Do you understand the distinction? The point isn't the message he received. In fact, that's one of the most minor points of the entire story. The point is he received a message, and what's important for us is how he responded, right? Now, we don't know how he received the message. It says the word of the Lord came, and in the Old Testament, God would reveal himself to prophets in, in all kinds of different ways, right? Sometimes he would speak directly to them, right? We find that with Moses. We find that with others. Sometimes he would speak to them in visions when they were awake. So suddenly they would just be kind of like have this out-of-body experience, and, and they, were, they had a vision-type experience where they saw things and experienced things that, that, that were um, uh, clearly not what was directly in front of them. Sometimes it was in a dream state, right? They were asleep, and God visited them in their dreams. Sometimes God spoke to them through the quiet voice of their heart, right? That still whisper of God where there was a, a forming conviction that would occur as God just kind of uh, weighed down on their conscience or on their ideas to the point where they had a clarity, like, man, God is speaking to me in this. Sometimes God spoke to them through community, right? God spoke to them through the people that were around them, and, and, and that allowed them to formulate an idea of what God was saying and the direction they were supposed to go and the word they were supposed to deliver from God. However the word came, what's clear is that it came with authority, right? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and the focus is on the event, not so much the message, um, because the message itself is actually quite simple. Take a look at verse 2. This is the message he received. Arise, get up, go to Nineveh, the great city. That, that means that it was great in, in population. Um, it was a big city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. All right, that's a simple message, right? Pretty straightforward. Now, there are some things that are unusual here. First of all, Jonah is asked to actually go to Nineveh. That's really unusual. Prophets were often called to prophesy against nations. Very seldom um, are they actually asked to go to foreign nations and actually prophesy against them in person, right? Jonah is actually part of the, the commission is don't just speak things about Nineveh. Go. Go to Nineveh. And, and, and let them know that their evilness has come up before me. Now, now Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with your ancient history, but the Assyrians uh, were a violent and uh, powerful nation, right? They were known 
some of their leaders specifically were known for, um, I mean, just think about the cruelest despots we have, uh, the most heinous violations of human rights we have today. Assyria ranks right up there, right? We're talking about people filleted alive. We're talking about like just crazy, crazy stuff. You, you don't want to be in Assyria and be on the bad side of the leaders, right? Because bad things happen to you there. Assyria was, was uh, not a nice place. It was cruel, it was violent, and it was determined to grow in power. Um, now, here's the thing. During Jonah's time, when Jonah was commissioned to go to speak to Nineveh, Israel was actually in a period of prosperity, right? The GDP was good. Job market looked good. Uh, unemployment was down. Um, uh, Israel was thriving. Their borders were expanding, right? It was a period of optimism. It was a period of growth. God had, had given them a season of respite from their enemies, and they were expanding even to the point um, during this period of time, their borders expanded to the point where it was, it was, it was, it was similar to, to when they were at their greatest peak of power, right? Simultaneously, the Assyrians, and, and these things actually went hand in hand, the Assyrians were dropping in power. The Assyrians were becoming less and less influential on the world stage. And, um, and, and as a result, at one point, the leader of Assyria is called the king of Nineveh, which is a, a strange way of putting it. It meant that their kingdom had shrunk so much that Nineveh itself really was all they, they controlled. Now, they might have had provinces outside of that, but all they actually controlled was the great city of Nineveh. So they were shrinking in influence. And it's during this period of time, God shows up to Jonah and says to Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them that their evil has come up before me. Now, the Hebrew word for evil can be translated as evil or as destruction. And here's the hang-up for Jonah. I don't think Jonah had any problem at all going and telling them how evil they were. I think he had a problem with warning them that God was going to bring destruction because he served a God of steadfast love and faithfulness. He served a God who was rich in mercy. It's one thing to show up and say you're evil and I'm going to laugh when you get destroyed. It's another thing to show up and say, by the way, God is going to bring destruction because as soon as you start warning people, you're actually inviting them to repent. You're actually inviting them to turn away from their evil and seek the mercy of a God who is, by his very nature, merciful. There's the bite. Jonah had no problem declaring their wickedness. Jonah had a problem becoming the instrument of their repentance. Jonah didn't want them delivered. Jonah wanted them judged. And they were on the way down. I mean, they were like right on the precipice of falling into the pit they had dug for themselves. They were right on the edge of receiving everything that was their due. They were right on the edge of their destruction. And God's like, Jonah, I'm tapping you, man. You're going to go and warn them. So Jonah's response in verse 3, the English word but Uh, not in the Hebrew. It's very sudden in the Hebrew. It says, Jonah rose. And every uh, good Jewish reader would assume that Jonah was rising to do what every prophet of God was supposed to do, to obey God, right? God said, arise and go to Nineveh. And so Jonah arose, right? And rather surprisingly, um, doesn't go to Nineveh, right? But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice the repetition here. 
to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So we find out where he's going and why he's going there. Just, just so you know, um, Nineveh was about 500 miles northeast of where Jonah was. And, and Tarshish is like 500 miles west. So he, he looked at a map and he was like, that's where you're telling me to go? That's where I'm going, right? What's the farthest place I can go, right? How, how can I put the most distance between me and what you're asking me to do, right? Now notice the, the repetition because this is actually in the Hebrew very poetic and it would have carried power. We lose it a little bit in English, but I want you to see it. Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. Why? From the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa. Notice that emphasis on down. It's going to repeat itself. Went down to Joppa, which is the seaport city. He found a ship going where? To Tarshish. Repeats it again. So he paid the fare and he went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. The third time it's repeated. And then again the second time. Why? To flee from the presence of the Lord. There is this, this Hebrew structure of repetition. To Tarshish, to Tarshish, to Tarshish. He went down. He went down. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord. He was fleeing the presence of the Lord. There is um, a structure here where we see Jonah progressively moving down away from God. And moving down is a powerfully symbolic image because he's moving down on the path of death. Instead of moving toward God on the path of life, he is moving down on the path of death, which is going to lead him down into the belly of the ship, which is going to lead him down into the belly of the water, which is going to lead him down into the belly of the fish. He is already beginning his descent into death. And in his determination, he is um, leaving um, God's call behind. Now, Joppa was a seaport city uh, in Israel. The Israelites were, by and large, land people. You know what I'm saying? Like, they'd have, they liked to have dirt under their sandals. They didn't spend a lot of time on the ocean, right? That wasn't their thing. They, they, they weren't seafaring people. Now, they would go fishing. They would take day trips out on the water to do their fishing and do their business. But these weren't the guys who built the large ships for exploration. Those were the Phoenicians, and so he clearly is going to Joppa to connect with the Phoenicians who were a Gentile people. The, the Jews would have tried to minimize all of their interaction with Gentile merchants, if at all possible. Man, he is all in. And in fact, it says that he booked his trip. Um, the indication here is it's possible he actually booked out the entire cargo hold, <laughs> right? That, that, which would have meant that when he got up to leave, man, he was like, I'm done, right? Like, like he sold his house, cashed out his 401k, it was like, I'm so done. I'm investing everything and I'm burning the ships behind me. That would explain why later in the book, when the storm comes up, the only conversation is between Jonah and the ship, the, the, the sailors, right? There's nobody else on the ship, right? It's like, it's like he's so determined. He's like, I'm buying the whole thing and we're just going, right? And so he, he books this passage. He pays the fare. The whole thing is to move away from God. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Jonah is trying to ghost God, right? And so you're like, what does that mean? Um, so when ghosting, we've always done it. We've just never had a name for it, right? So, so it's when you get tired of a relationship and you just stop talking to the person, right? It's like that day didn't go so well. 
So like no further text, no further phone calls, you disappear off social media, you're just gone, right? Instead of being a mature adult that actually has a conversation with somebody and honors them, you just disappear, right? Jonah tries to ghost God. Jonah's like, I'm done. I'm done. This, this relationship just became way too complex, right? You're, you're going way too fast for me, God. That's not, no, no, not in for that. I'm gone. He just tries to disappear from God. And in his running, he is, um, he is, he is trying to pretend that God isn't God. Um, so this is a little bit crazy um, because um, Jonah knows that um, you can't flee from the presence of God, right? Jonah is a prophet of God. He knows that Yahweh is not some localized deity that if you can just get outside of a certain zip code, he no longer has power, right? Because that's how a lot of people thought about localized gods. We have our God, you have your God, and if you just cross out of the territory, that God's not, has not, he knew that this was the God of heaven and earth, the God who created all things. He knew there was nowhere he could go that he could flee God's presence, but, but in his insane determination to avoid this call. He pretended that he could, in fact, escape from the presence of God. Now, he knew that he couldn't, right? Because when the storm comes up, one of the things that he tells the sailors is, all right, this was my fault because I have Yahweh as my God and he's the God of heaven and earth, right? I, I, I knew I couldn't get away, right? But in this moment, in this moment, the grace of God is so ugly. The call of God is so ugly. He will pretend that God's not God. That God doesn't have the authority God has. That God doesn't have the, the vision that God has. That God doesn't have the intent that God has. No, I'm going to pretend that God's not God because I'm determined to go my own direction. Move my own way. All right, it is easy for us to judge Jonah, isn't it? We look at this and we're like, Jonah, you are such a dipstick, right? I mean, like, how dense do you have to be to be a prophet of God and forget that God is God, right? I mean, you big dope. I mean, it's no wonder the big storm came. Of course you were going to get swallowed by a fish. Should have known from the very beginning, right? How dumb do you have to be to try to ghost God? All right, he knows, he knows that God is God, but in his determination to flee, he just pretends that he's not. Now, before we get too smug in our opinion about Jonah, huh? Before we get, uh, uh, you know, like, like, oh, what a big dummy he is. Um, let's consider how we can be big dummies too. Let's, let's just stop and consider ourselves. All right, for a moment, I want you to think about someone you despise. Now, if you're highly political, that's not going to be hard. We live in such a polarized, right? Some of you are like, oh, Hillary Clinton, Nancy Pelosi, Donald Trump, John Ryan, right? It's just easy, right? Maybe for you it's not political. Maybe it's personal. Maybe it's somebody who's betrayed you or hurt you. Somebody that you were counting on and they weren't trustworthy. Somebody who violated your trust. Somebody who did something that embarrassed you or exposed you or hurt you. Think about somebody you despise. And you feel perfectly justified in despising them. Right? Let's be honest. You have no problem setting up a little altar in your heart of of despising, right? It's like their picture's right on top. You get to spit on it every time you walk by in your imagination. This is somebody that you feel justified in, uh, in despising. And you're like, Steve, I don't have anybody like that. All right, you will. 
Glad you don't now. Um, but the reality is most of us at one point or another have had to struggle with resentment and feeling um, justified and honestly um, rejecting somebody. And, and, and here's the thing. We want them to be judged. Man, we long for them to be judged. It's like, man, if God would just bring the hammer down on them, I might smile. And now imagine God came to you and said, right when they were on the edge of falling into the pit they dug, possibly at your expense, right when they were on the edge of, of getting what they deserved, right when they were on the edge of everything they built falling down on them, right there, and God's like... I want you to go talk to them. I want you to warn them. I want you to invite them to repentance so that they might avoid the judgment that is their due. Would you might maybe hesitate a little bit? Like, would you maybe have like a little, little gut reaction where you're like, are you serious, them? I don't do hard conversations anyway, and you want me to go talk to them? I, I hate, I hate, and them, them, is it possible that you might turn around and walk the other direction? Is it possible that you might in that moment pretend that God's not God and that what he's asking you to do is non-negotiable? And that if you can somehow just put enough distance between you and them, you and that situation, somehow maybe God will forget. How tempted would you be? All right, let's go a little bit further. How often do you hear God's voice? Like the conviction. I'm not, you know, like, like there are things in here, this book right, that challenge us. And you hear God's voice, you have that internal voice of conviction, you know God wants you to do something or say something or make a decision, and you're just like, nah. Thanks for the suggestion, God. Nah. I know that's what you want me to do, but nah. I think I know better. I know you tell me that that this is the way I'm supposed to go. But I like my way. I know you're telling me that I should stop doing this, but it, I like doing it. I know you warn me that this is dangerous, but ah, come on, it's me. Nah. How often do we approach God as the one who makes grand suggestions instead of absolute commands? How often do we approach God and mistrust His will in preference of our own? Because here's the thing. God is a God of grace. We know that, right? And, and grace is a beautiful thing. Grace, grace is this. It, it, it is God's unearned, unmerited love and favor. We get God's grace because Jesus took God's justice. Right? Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserved to die. He was my substitute in judgment, and He rose again so that I could become His partner in blessing and in resurrection. I love that message. I love to get the love of God. I love to get all the good things that God will give me. I love the favor, and I love the, 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 the security, and I love, I love God's grace. Right? The challenge is 
love always comes with expectations. Because God's grace, while He loves us as we are, will not leave us as we are. God's grace loves us as we are, but it will demand that we grow and change. He will not leave us in the slavery of our sin. He will not leave us in our self-designed prisons of resentment. He will not leave us in our poor choices that seem like wisdom because in the short term they bring pleasure, but in the long term they bring death. He will not leave us. God's grace is an incredible message of blessing. But God's grace comes with an absolute demand. God will have us, all of us. He will free us. He will change us. Which means that often He will lead us in ways that feel to us like death. Because what He's asking us to do is not what we would ask of ourselves. There are times when God's path of grace looks like it goes into the pit of death. And thank you very much, I'd rather not die. There are things he, he asks me to give up, I don't want to give up. There are sacrifices He asks me to make that I don't want to make. He, there are decisions He asks me to, to commit to that I don't want to commit to. There are sacrifices that He asks me to make on behalf of others that I'm not comfortable making. There are convictions that He, that he asks me to hold. Right, This incredible book that tells me the love of God also tells me about the design of humanity. And there are some things in here that are hard for me to believe. There are convictions in here I don't want to hold. They're not convenient to me. They're not what I want to be true. But God demands that I am absolutely set free by truth, even if that truth is not convenient to what I want it to be. God's grace shows up not just with blessing, but with demands, because He demands that we will be free. He demands that we will be transformed. He demands that we will be remade in the likeness of Christ, which means we need to die to be born again. We need to die to be raised from the dead. There are things in us. What this means, you guys, listen, what this means is that God's plan for me is always better than my plan for myself. The path that he lays out for me, as difficult as it may seem, as hard as it may feel, God's path always leads to life. Because he is always motivated by grace. He is always motivated by love. His purpose is not just to do great things through me. His purpose is to do great things in me. And often he will ask me to do things, knowing that in the doing of them, I will be challenged and I will be changed. There are things in me that are hurting me, enslaving me, that are bondage to me, and he wants to put those things to death. The problem is I often love those things because they're my identity outside of Christ. They're what make me secure or important or valuable or loved, and and if God takes those things away, what will be left? And like Jonah, I will often run in the opposite direction and pretend that God is not God and that His commission isn't His commission and that He won't always fulfill His word. One of the beautiful things we learn over the course of this book is that, is that God never lets us fail a test. It's like outcome-based education. You just keep retaking the test till you pass it, right? God, once you have tasted and received His grace, God will have you. 
he will free you. He is not safe, but he is good. And there are times when his grace will be ugly. Jonah saw the path of grace and it was ugly. It was unattractive. It was uninviting. And let's be honest, how often do we do the same? How often do we wrestle? Because we trust our way better than we trust God's. We trust our own wisdom. We trust our own knowledge. We trust our own security. We trust in the story we want to tell for ourselves instead of the story God wants to tell for us. And instead of joy, following God feels like sorrow and suffering. And sometimes it's not that God asks you to do something. Sometimes it's God puts you in a situation you don't want to be. Life events occur around you that are out of your control. But you know there is a path through those events that God is asking you to take. And you don't want to take it. You don't want to be there. This isn't the life you wanted for you. These aren't the choices you made for yourself. This is not what you wanted. So here's the thing, you guys. And this is where I want us to start, and it's honestly where we're going to end this morning. Let's admit we're Jonah. We are Jonah. Jonah's not this crazy story that happened once that's a weird, you know, that he was just a big dummy. He, he is all of us because we're all big dummies. We all think God's not God and that we know better than him. And so as we enter into this, what I want you to see is that we're entering into a book that is going to invite us to recognize that even when he's not safe, he is good. That even when the path of obedience looks hard, it is life. That even if he asks you to enter into the valley of the shadow of death, there is life on the other side. We are all Jonah. And we have all, at times, tried to disappear on God. But praise God, he will not disappear on us. And his grace will not be thwarted. And when this story is done, when this story is done, we'll give thanks for the great fish that swallow us. And we will give thanks for the pain that God's grace brings to us to set us free from those things that would kill us. Because he will bring us to life, even if that means taking us through death. All right, let's close there for this morning. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to move into a time of response. We're going to share communion. Um, But we'll introduce that in a moment. Let me pray for us as we move into a time of response. Father, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you are for us, that you are a God of steadfast love and faithfulness, that you are a God who makes a commitment in your covenant and keeps that commitment in your covenant, that you are a God rich in mercy, that you are a God of justice, but in your justice and in love, you provided us a substitute that we might be delivered from our guilt, that we might be rescued from our shame, that we might be brought into the beauty of love. 
But Lord, we acknowledge this morning that sometimes your love doesn't feel safe. There are times when your path doesn't feel right. There are times when the, the, the path to life feels like we're walking into death. Lord, we confess this morning, like Jonah, we often want to disappear on you. I pray, Lord, that you'll speak to my friends that are in spots of great suffering this morning. For those that are desperately trying to run from the convictions that you are placing on their heart. They are trying to ignore your invitation to life, pretend like it's not there, and hope that you'll disappear. The Spirit, you will make it incredibly clear to them this morning that first of all, you're not going anywhere, and second of all, you are inviting them to life. Will you renew their trust this morning? that they would trust you more than they trust themselves. They would rely on your wisdom more than they rely on their own. That they would yield and learn the path of humble dependency, knowing that it is in humble dependence that we discover the true riches and bounty of grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.